Welcome to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Podula. This week, what exactly happened on Tuesday? Some Democrats won and some Republicans won. That is what happens when more than 100 million Americans participate and vote in free and fair and open elections. But how many Republicans won and why wasn't it more? The polls predicted a GOP landslide, but that never happened. We'll get an inside perspective from a high-ranking party operative. Plus, all eyes on Georgia again. I need you to show up and vote because a vote is a kind of prayer for the world we desire for ourselves and for our children. And how did pollsters have another high-profile miss? They undercounted Republican support in 2016 and now Democratic support in 2022. We'll get a post-mortem from a local expert. And who exactly will be the next Speaker of the House? The American people are ready for a majority that will offer a new direction, that will put America back on track. Republicans are ready to deliver it. But can they, when they're not exactly unified behind a single leader? All of that coming up this hour. But first, by any measurable standard, Republicans seem to have underperformed, at least according to what the polls were saying, heading into the midterm elections this past Tuesday. Here in Washington state, there were some victories. There were some losses for the GOP. And to break it all down, joining me now is chairman of the Washington State Republican Party, and that's Caleb Heimlich. And uh, first off, thank you so much for taking some time out of your day. Happy to do it. Thank you for having me, Jeff. Yeah, so I guess first off, uh, what's your initial reaction to the results from Tuesday? Well, number one, this is a very polarized and divided country. I think that was uh, clear in the results uh, nationally on Tuesday night and in the days that followed. Uh, It looks like Republicans are likely uh, pending results out west where it takes us a little while to count absentee ballots. But Republicans are likely to flip the U.S. House of Representatives and have a majority there, uh, which is significant. That has only happened three times in the last 50 or 70 years that Republicans have captured the majority. Uh, so it certainly wasn't as big of a wave as people expected, as polls maybe were showing, but it still is a significant changing of power with Republicans having the majority in the House of Representatives. The Senate is going to come down to Nevada, Georgia, and maybe Arizona, but it's also going to be very close. Again, I think our country is very divided, very polarized. Here in Washington state, we're, we're still counting ballots. Um, it takes a little while, so we've got to let the dust settle to fully figure out where everything's at. But at the end of the day, at least at the state legislative level, it's going to maintain basically a status of status quo. Democrats might gain a seat here or lose a seat there, but it's essentially going to be a draw, um, which is not what we'd hoped for, but it is what the what the voters seem to have said. You say this isn't what the GOP had hoped for. Clearly, you were hoping for that red wave. What do you think went wrong? Was it a messaging problem? Uh, clearly, there was a polling problem that, that missed Democratic voters, much like in 2016, pollsters missed Republican voters. But where do you think the disconnect is? I think, the, I think what the Democrats did effectively is made this election about abortion and abortion rights. And in Washington state, Uh, particularly amongst younger voters, that was a motivating factor for them to come out, to actually vote, uh, to engage and cast their ballots. And then I think for swing voters, particularly in our suburban legislative districts and 
uh, maybe congressional districts, that was a that was their deciding factor of which party to choose from between. I think we were winning um, on inflation, on concerns about government spending, on concerns about the price of gas. I think we were winning on public safety. Uh, but if voters felt like that was a right that they wanted that was going to be taken away, uh, then they voted to protect that right and voted for the Democrat candidate in that case. I mean, we'll, there's I think there's a lot of data to crunch, numbers to look at, but that's kind of my initial uh, reaction. Seems sort of like that you're, you're having a little buyer's remorse for that Dobbs decision the Supreme Court handed down over the summer that seemed to have changed the makeup of the race. Well, I mean, obviously, as you know, and everybody listening knows, it wasn't Republicans that decided that. That was the U.S. Supreme Court and, and that. But I do think that shifted things. You look at what happened in 2021 in the Virginia's governor election and their legislative elections, Republicans had big wins in Virginia, a state not too dissimilar to Washington with um, higher educated, lots of suburban voters. And they were a Republican governor was able to win there. They were able to make gains, meaningful gains in the legislature. And even in New Jersey in 2021, Republicans had really positive results. And what happened uh, between 2021 and then November of 2022 was that Dobbs decision in June. I think that uh, fundamentally kind of altered the political dynamics uh, for the country and particularly for Washington state. I think Democrats got away with lying to voters, I would argue, in, in Governor Inslee and others coming out and saying, well, if a Republican wins, they're going to take away this right. That was frankly not true, particularly in Washington state. I mean, if we gained a seat or two or four or eight in the state house, Governor Inslee was still going to be the governor. And when Republicans controlled the Senate from 2013 to 2017, there were no efforts made to change Washington state law. I think most Republicans recognize that that is settled law and that was not subject to the Dobbs decision whatsoever. But Democrats came out and used that as a motivator and I think scared voters into saying you can't vote for those Republicans because they're going to do this, which which was not which was dishonest. As you look at how voters turned out across the country, you talk about the issue of abortion. It appears at the moment now anyway, as you said, votes are still being counted. But everywhere abortion access was on the ballot, voters voted to keep abortion access, to reject abortion bans. Is this a plank within the Republican Party that is being reconsidered? Because it seems like the voters are sending a strong message, whether it's in Kansas, Kentucky, or elsewhere. Yeah, that's a it's a good point on the results. I think that there's a tension there, obviously within the party, and I think within voters as well. I think I I personally believe that there actually is a middle ground on abortion. I, oftentimes, people go to the extreme on either side. I think the vast majority of voters want access but they're comfortable with certain restrictions. And uh, whether that's a late-term abortion, um, whether it's a different, uh, whether that's 20 weeks or at some scale, I think the average person, if you sit down, is okay with some level, uh, not, a, not a free-for-all, not abortion on demand up until birth, but some level of restriction. But in general, voters are very much against 
um, banning it outright. They want uh, people to have that choice. And so that is uh, what we're seeing to be hearing from voters right now. Has there been any discussion within the party about changing that plank of the platform? Not at this point. Um, and I, I think that the fundamental challenge there is that deep down, many Republicans are pro-life. And, uh, and that's a deeply held uh, philosophic position. And so we'll see what happens moving forward. Turning to some of the more local races, whether it be for state legislature or or otherwise, uh, again, votes still being counted. We have to say that, as you, as you said off the top, it takes us quite a while to get all those absentee ballots in and, and tally them up. Some very close races uh, for state legislature, and, and one in particular caught my eye, and that has to do with a Republican-on-Republican Republican race in which Sam Lowe was challenging Robert Sutherland. It seems that the party kind of turned on the incumbent Sutherland and endorsed his opponent. That seemed to be where the money went. What's your take on that race? Well, I would I would just clarify the party did not uh, get involved. Our approach was we're going to let the voters decide. The state party did not get involved. Uh, the county party may have endorsed the incumbent at the legislative district level, but that was not our we didn't. We did not get involved in that race. We, when it's any time there's a Republican versus Republican contest, our approach is the voters of that district deserve to make that decision, and we focus on other races where it's a Republican versus a Democrat. So ultimately, it was up to the voters, and the voters are deciding who they think best represents their district. It seems like that's sort of a, a microcosm of, of what we saw kind of across the country when it comes to Republican voters or voters in general, this idea of Reagan Republicanism versus the new Trump Republicanism. Sutherland certainly felt into that latter category. He was very much a Trump ally, questioned the results of the 2020 election, and he appears to be losing, and a lot of those Trump-allied Republicans lost on election night. This is a big fracture within the party, isn't it? What I would say, generally speaking, is it appears that voters want people, want elected officials, want elected leaders to focus on the future. What are you going to do? What are you talking about that's going to make my tomorrow better? Republicans picked up congressional seats in New York and they picked up congressional seats in Florida. And I think in both of those places, even in suburban swing seats, that Republicans were winning on the message of here's what I'm going to do for you to make your life better. And that's, I think, at the end of the day, what voters want to hear. Uh, voters want to know what are you going to do for my kids? What are you going to do for my community? What are you going to do for us looking ahead. And, and that's where I think anytime you're looking backwards, um, you're taking your eye off of what matters to the voters. They want to look forward. They want to know what's going to be done to make their future better. Voters believe our country is on the wrong track. I mean, all polls are showing that whether 65, 70% of voters are dissatisfied. So this was not a overwhelmingly affirming referendum on President Biden or the Democrats' leadership. And if they take it as such and double down on their radically out-of-step policies, then they've got uh, a surprise coming in 2024. I think in, in part, uh, their wins were driven by abortion and a rejection of perceived extremism. 
Um, and so I think that is that no question voters want competence and they want people that are going to provide for a brighter future. Speaking as a Republican operative for the future of the GOP, does it have to move on from Donald Trump? I think we have to. I would go back to what I just discussed. We have to look to the future. And whether that is a Donald Trump or whether it is someone else, the focus needs to be forward. We're not, voters don't care at this point about 2020. They want to know what are you going to do about 2023 and 2024 and, and my kids and my job and my, my pocketbook. And that's where you saw Glenn Youngkin win in 2021 and DeSantis and Brian Kemp. So I think the 2024 conversation is obviously going to begin in earnest. I think a lot of a lot of voters um, are not going to tune in. Uh, they've got lives to live and we just got through an election and they've got better things to do. Uh, but as those primaries start to heat up next year and whoever announces for president, what what I'm hearing is let's talk about the future. And whoever our candidate is, they have to convey an optimistic vision for what they would accomplish um, if voters select them uh, to lead our country forward. All right, Caleb Heimlich, Washington State Republican Party Chair, thank you so much for your time and insight. Yeah, thank you very much, Jeff. Now we have to take a quick break, but when we come back, 2022 isn't over yet as control of the Senate hinges on a runoff election in Georgia when the Northwest Politicast continues after this. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogelup. Here's Kim Shepard. While we're enjoying the end of campaign season here in Washington state, folks in Georgia are going into round two with a runoff between Democrat incumbent Raphael Warnock and Republican challenger Herschel Walker in a race that could shift control of the Senate. ABC's Derek Dennis is on the Northwest Newsline. And Derek, how much longer will it be before we finally know the outcome of this one? Well, listen, this runoff is set for December 6th, uh, so barring any major hiccups with that, uh, we should know pretty quickly after that uh, who will be uh, Georgia's next uh, senator. Uh, We've got the incumbent Raphael Warnock, the Democrat, up against Republican Herschel Walker. Uh, Their race was so close, separated by just about 49,000 votes on Tuesday, uh, that they have to go to this runoff uh, to to decide who will take the seat. Uh, It's a contentious race uh, with uh, 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 Herschel Walker uh, deciding to deflect and, and really denying uh, all of these reports that uh, he had uh, paid women to have an abortion in his past, uh, and that's particularly concerning con- considering that he's run on a platform uh, of, uh, of of coming out a- against uh, abortion as a, as a right. So he uh, is uh, facing an uphill battle, but still it was one where he came so close to, to winning on Tuesday against Raphael Warnock, the sitting uh, senator. And so we'll have to see how this runoff race shakes out. And as you mentioned, just a 49,000 vote difference between the two. There was a libertarian candidate on the ballot that got about 80,000 votes. I'm wondering if this runoff might not come down to who the libertarians like. 
Right, exactly. The, the libertarian will 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 likely go away, and you know, so this runoff race will really pit just Raphael Warnock against Herschel Walker, and so uh, the the splitting of the vote that the libertarian candidate was able to take away uh, during the midterm election on Tuesday uh, not going to have such a difference uh, in this runoff race because it really is between Warnock and Walker uh, in December. And so, do you have a lot of heavy hitters planning to stop on by to help out? their candidates? Yeah, that's an interesting question. There's a lot of talk uh, about whether former President Trump will go down and actually campaign in person uh, for Herschel Walker. He endorsed him, uh, and they are longtime friends, but uh, the former president was not seen on the campaign trail leading up to the midterms, and there's a real question about whether he will uh, campaign in person uh, for this runoff election. Uh, Trump is considered, in many circles, to be a bit of a liability uh, you know, in, you know, in, in political circles now. Uh, On the other side, uh, there's a question about whether former president uh, or current president Biden, excuse me, will go and campaign for Raphael Warnock. The Biden administration was asked about this, and their answer was whatever uh, Senator Walker wants, uh, or Senator Warnock wants. Senator Warnock uh, will have to make the decision, according to the Biden administration. So they're they're certainly going to need some heavy hitters to come in and and campaign with them, both sides. Uh, We'll look to see for, uh, you know, whether other other uh, political heavyweights will join them, but it's likely they will. Uh, these candidates will need all the help they can get on either side uh, in this crucial race that uh, could very well determine the balance of power in the Senate. So as they go into round two of campaigning, are their messages the same or are they tweaking them at all? Uh, well, we know uh, Senator Warnock is tweaking it. I mean, his new campaign strategy uh, just released has been to paint Herschel Walker as completely unqualified to be senator. Uh, the, those are stronger words than we saw uh, leading up to the midterm election. So that's a change in, in strategy there. Uh, as for Herschel Walker, uh, he's going to campaign uh, on much the same strategy to, to talk about inflation and, and how American pocketbooks are are, are you know uh, lighter than they were uh, for you know four years ago? Uh, so uh, that's what he's uh, positioning himself as: staying to the issue, staying on message, especially dealing with the finances uh, that Americans are dealing with in terms of inflation and the overall economy. Yeah, we've been talking about this whole election cycle and how these campaigns have been some of the most expensive in American history. Yeah. I'm just curious, uh, how bad is it now in Georgia? How much of the advertising is going on there now. Well, there's political ads all over the, the screens, but more than that, uh, we just got this number uh, from the Walker campaign, raising $4 million yesterday and today alone, just since the midterm election on Tuesday. And so uh, we don't have numbers for Senator Warnock yet, but the Walker campaign raising $4 million in essentially a day gives you a sense of how much money is being poured into this race. Yeah, that's pretty incredible. Are they saying where all this money's coming? from? Private donors, mostly. Uh, Everyday Americans who are chipping in $10 here, $10 there. Uh, There's some big money donors as well. Uh, But the the Walker campaign says it's just everyday uh, voters and Americans, uh, and not just in Georgia, but across the country, who are chipping in to help him win. Yeah, we saw a lot of money from other states coming in to uh, back candidates in our Senate race here in Washington state. Is that something that, that Georgia's seeing a lot of this cycle as well? 
Yeah, they are, and 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 they are going to get even more now that it's just this race that's going to be uh, so critical. I mean, we're waiting to hear other closely contested races as well in Arizona and Nevada. But Georgia is considered a real must-win state for the Republicans, uh, and so you're going to see uh, Republican donors from all over the country pouring in money. They already have four million dollars in just a day uh, raised by the Walker campaign. Now, have either candidate it raised any issues, any concerns about the way the votes are being counted or how this election was run? No, we have not heard that. Uh, we know that uh, the uh, the Secretary of State in Georgia is uh, conducting an audit just on uh, the Secretary of State's race. Uh, that one is, is one just to make sure everything was done properly because uh, the Secretary of State's race was so close in the vote tally. But not so much in this Senate race, we haven't seen the the kinds of irregularities that would prompt uh, an audit at that level. And so, no, no real major complaints there. Uh, the, I guess the only complaint among the candidates is when this will be over. Uh, December 6th is, is when the runoff will happen. So what does that actually look like for them? Do they do only in-person voting? Are they going to have drop boxes? Can people vote early? Yeah, uh, they people can request absentee ballots. Uh, they can certainly vote in person on December sixth, uh, but also early voting could begin as, in in some counties in Georgia uh, right around Thanksgiving. Uh, and so, yeah, the, all of the options to vote are on the table in Georgia. And so, people really uh, should get out to to vote because it's such a crucial election, and because there are many ways now to vote, not just in person. Are they expecting there to be an even higher turnout, possibly because of the runoff? Yeah, it, historically, uh, it, it's it's a toss-up. Runoffs uh, can sometimes have less of a turnout, sometimes more. It just depends. Uh, but with so many political ads out there, and 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 the word is out that this is such a crucial. Uh, crucial election. Uh, the the voter turnout is expected to be high, according to state officials, even for the runoff election. We'll have to wait and see if it really does that. But we know the candidates are out right now, today, uh, campaigning door to door to get out the vote. Yeah, one thing voters certainly cannot say is that they didn't know or forgot about right. the election. <laughs> Exactly. The the political ads are everywhere. If you're in Georgia at any point, uh, you would see every other commercial is some sort of political ad uh, going on for this race. ABC's Derek Dennis on the Northwest Newsline from Georgia. That's Northwest News Radio's Kim Shepard. We have to take another quick break, but coming up next, how is it that pollsters got the midterms so wrong? We'll talk with one of them when the Northwest Politicast returns in just a moment. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogelo. Well, in 2016, pollsters really underaccounted, underestimated Donald Trump's support amongst the American electorate. Now, six years later, it seems like pollsters underestimated Democratic support in the midterms. So what's going on with the polling industry? How are methodologies changing, and are they better or are they worse? Joining me now is Stuart Elway. He is the director of the Crosscut Elway Poll here in Seattle. And you're an expert in, in polling, and so I'll put that just generic question to you first. How are things changing? How did pollsters miss what was going on here in 2022? Because we were all expecting a red wave. Well, I'm not sure they did miss. I mean, the, the polls actually had a pretty good year this year. They... Uh, on the close races, most of the polls said it was going to be close. 
Uh, we're still waiting for several like Senate races and the vote is going to be one or two points, which is well within the margin of error of any poll. So I think that's one aspect that the the um, legitimate public polls did not have such a bad year. They said it was going to be close. It is close. How much of this is those of us in the media not really understanding what polling does and doesn't do and what it can and can't do? Well, I think there's a lot of that. And, and you know, pollsters themselves are not without blame. But we talk about the margin of error till we're blue in the face, but nobody wants to hear about that. Any poll is an estimate of the population. And so the margin of error means that the poll is likely to be within this range. And it's usually plus or minus three or four points. So if an election is decided by two points, the, the poll actually kind of got it right. But well, yeah, a two other, point swing when it's a 13 point race is one yeah. thing, but a two point swing when it's 50 50 could go either way. Right. And so many of these races are right on that knife's edge. And so it's within that margin of error. The other aspect of the margin of error, which nobody talks about, is that that's, we have a 95 percent confidence that it's going to be within the margin of error. So one out of every 20 polls is statistically probably going to be wrong. There, there was also an actual dynamic this year. Early in the year, all the polls, our polls, were showing a Republican uh, wave building, like in January, February. Then the Dobbs decision really changed the dynamic of the race. And all of a sudden, it looked like Democrats were going to have a good year. Then it started to dissipate a bit and Republicans kind of came back and tightened up and and I characterized it in our September poll, which incidentally had Murray ahead by 12. She's now leading by 14. It was like things kind of got back to normal. There was a red wave, there was a blue surge, and now we're back to normal, which is in Washington state, that means a 10 or 11 point advantage for Democrats. How much more difficult is it to get an accurate sample of the electorate now that fewer people have landlines, a lot of people don't answer the phone when they see that unknown number pop up? Uh, it seems like it's a lot harder to get a hold of voters now than it was 20 years ago. It's much harder. Um, uh, actually, uh, caller ID has done more <laughs> damage to my industry than cell phones. We kind of got the cell phones now, but caller ID, the, the response rate has just plummeted. Um, and so that makes it, uh, as you point out, more difficult to get a representative sample because you, you have to ask, are people who answer a survey different politically than people who don't answer the survey. And there's been, you mentioned 2016 and 2020, there's a lot of work gone on around that question because uh, Trump, the, the polls kind of missed Trump. And then so there was this uh, hypothesis that there's this, what they call a shy Trump voter or that uh, people who are inclined to vote for Trump were less likely to participate in polls. Um, and that's been, it hasn't been uh, entirely what, discredited, but it seems like that's maybe not as much an issue uh, as it seemed to be. They're still really still looking at that, uh, trying to figure that out. But, but it, yeah, it does present a problem for pollsters of, uh, of getting people uh, on the phone. So a lot of polls now, are using mixed methods of why we're all calling 
landlines and cell phones, but a lot of polls now are blending that with online surveys, which are do not meet the strict standard of being a random sample because these are people who all have agreed to be polled online. Uh, so you can match the demographics because uh, companies have a large number of people, millions, who say that they will take this poll. So I say, I want to have a poll of half women, half men and half women and 30% Republicans and 40% Democrats in Washington state. And, and most of them, you know, in the Seattle, uh, Western Washington area, so you can make all those specifications and do that, but it's, and, and get people to match that. It's harder to do on a state level than it is on a national, just for, by virtue of the numbers needed. Uh, but it's still not really a random sample. So a lot of, pollsters are blending those two now because the telephone response rates have really dropped off. Is that the direction that pollsters are going is now online surveys? Yes. You know, uh, telephone surveys replaced in-home surveys when 95% of the phone, uh, households in America had telephones. And I think it's inevitable that it will be online eventually but but the the problem is always going to be that random sample not everybody has on a computer at home believe it or not and uh, getting a hold of them you don't there's no such thing as a random generator for email addresses or a list of registered voters with email addresses that's always going to be the problem of drawing a uh, scientifically random sample from an online panel but work is going on in that area and, and actually new statistics are being developed to account for that. You'll see some now that, that don't talk about the margin of error. They, they have other methods now of trying to um, indicate the reliability and validity of a survey. But, you know, the whole world's going online. So I think that's certainly where polling is going to be in probably the not too distant future. To wrap up our conversation, I'll ask a very direct question. How accurate are the polls? Well, as we started out saying, most of the polls had these races pretty close this year. Pollsters spend a lot of time going through all these methodological things we've been talking about to get it right because that's you know that's our business. If we don't get it right, well, we don't have much business. But you've always got that margin of error we talked about. And in, a, in an election, we've always got undecided voters. I mean, even in the last polls on the last days of the election, there were still five, six percent undecided in that Senate race. In closer races like Arizona or, or Georgia, if people say they're undecided, you're going to have both the margin of error and the undecided voters affecting the outcome. All right, pollster Stuart Elway, director of the Crosscut Elway Poll, thank you so much for your time and insight. Anytime. We have to take another quick break, but when we come back, President Biden meets with one of America's most formidable adversaries when the Northwest Politicast continues after this. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogelup. Here's Manda Factor. Well, President Biden is getting ready to meet with China's president. This is National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan. He will get to sit in the same room with Xi Jinping, be direct and straightforward with him as he always is, and expect the same in return from Xi. And then he can make his judgments on that basis about how to take things forward. 
ABC's Karen Travers is on our Northwest Newsline from Washington, D.C. This will be their first face-to-face meeting, won't it? It is their first face-to-face meeting. Now, they have had a five phone conversations since President Biden took office. And, you know, the president likes to talk about how well he knows President Xi because of his time spent with him when he was vice president. But this is significant. It's a high-stakes meeting. They have a lot to talk about. Their agenda includes Taiwan, human rights, the global economy, of course. I'm sure the American tariffs on Chinese products will come up. Uh, but also also North Korea, Russia, and the war in Ukraine. And that is very significant because China has really towed the line with Russia, aligning itself with Moscow, but declining to give the military assistance for the invasion that Russia has wanted. But China hasn't joined the widespread sanctions on Russia that the U.S. and Western allies have coordinated. So that's likely to be a topic of conversation. Uh, and the president, you know, will see what type of pressure he might put on China. He did say this week he wanted to lay out red lines for both countries. It was striking to hear White House officials in the lead up uh, to this trip say that so much of this is establishing a floor for the relationship, really kind of saying that this is about setting lines, setting boundaries, almost like this is a reset for the relationship. No real expectation of something tangible to come out of it just a conversation. This is quite a busy trip. The president this morning has arrived in Egypt. Yes, he's already had a meeting uh, with the president there. He's set to deliver remarks on climate change at the UN Climate Summit. And this is different from when he was traveling to the Climate Summit last year in Scotland. And at that point, his agenda was looking very shaky, unclear if he was going to get any funding for climate change action uh, because of a lot of resistance from uh, some in his own party on that. But now he's coming with 300. $69 billion to play with from the Inflation Reduction Act. So look for him to tout that and say that the United States uh, is leading the way, taking action, and uh, other countries should follow the example. Karen, thanks for the updates. Have a great weekend. ABC's Karen Travers with us from Washington, D.C. And that's Northwest News Radio's Manda Factor. We have to take another quick break, but when we come back, who exactly will be the next Speaker of the House? The man who so clearly wants the job may not have such an easy time getting it when the Northwest Politicast continues in just a moment. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogelip. Once again, here's Kim Shepard. House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy is already angling to become Speaker of the House, even before the final votes are counted. ABC's Andy Field is on the Northwest Newsline. And Andy, we don't even know yet whether Republicans will be in control of the House. So is this premature or is this a necessary step for somebody who might have an uphill battle ahead of them? Well, it's certainly necessary if he wants to win because he doesn't necessarily have his entire caucus behind him. It certainly looks like the Republicans are going to grab the House, but maybe by just one or two votes, it it could be that close. You need 218. They're closer to that number than the Democrats are, but there are a lot of races that are still undecided, including Lauren Boebert in Colorado, one of Donald Trump's favorites. Election denier has been one of these firebrands for the Republican MAGA movement. She was behind a little bit. Now she's ahead a little bit. They're certainly going to have to have a recount in that district she's in in Colorado. And there are some of the outstanding votes are actually heavily weighted toward Democrats, not Republicans. So we'll see. She could be out of the the House, and that's one less vote for Kevin McCarthy to count on. But he doesn't have the confidence either of the far right wing of his own party, the Freedom Caucus, where they're not big fans of Kevin McCarthy. They'd like someone else. And if he can't get those votes in a very tight race, it's very likely he may be out and someone else would be in. So 
That's why Kevin McCarthy is trying to get the jump on everything right now. This is something he has been salivating for for uh, many, many years. He's this close to getting it here, and it really depends on how the votes pan out with the final concept. The Freedom Caucus has said that they don't like Kevin McCarthy for that role, but have they said who they would like in it? I, they haven't mentioned a particular name yet, but one of the things they want to do, that if they're going to give Kevin McCarthy their vote, they want all kinds of concessions to say, hey, if we don't like the way things are going, we can kick you out pretty easily. Or they want choice positions on some of the committees coming in, some of the investigations. It's not clear Kevin McCarthy wants to give up that power just as he's becoming speaker. He also uh, established what he called a transition team for the next Congress, and he already has a Republican whip Steve Scalise with his commitment to America implementation, and then oversight and accountability. It's basically the Seinfeld version of Festivus for Republicans, where they're going to have two years of airing of the grievances if they get in control of the House. Everything from investigating Hunter Biden, the president's son, to his withdrawal from Afghanistan, to what Dr. Anthony Fauci did or did not do during the pandemic. So we're going to see a whole lot of Benghazi-like investigations into things that may or may not be appropriate for Congress to investigate, number one, or have anything there to investigate. Aside from the ceremonial role and the prestigious title, remind us of why the Speaker of the House role is so important. Well, they make the committee assignments. They control the agenda of the House. They decide what gets on the House floor, what doesn't get on the House floor, what gets voted on. It's a lot of control, the party that is in control of that. Same thing in the Senate, which is why the Democrats are trying to hold on to it. But at this point, a couple of days out from the election, we're still not certain whether Democrats will control the House and Senate or Republicans or if it'll be split. ABC's Andy Field on the Northwest Newsline. And that's Northwest News Radio's Kim Shepard. That'll do it for this episode of the Northwest Politicast. If you like the show, please leave a rating and a review in Apple Podcasts. And for more, be sure to check out our other shows, such as Northwest News This Week, Life Beat with Marina Rockinger, and Puget Sound Now with Bill Swartz. All are available at nwnewsradio.com or on your favorite podcast app. I'm Jeff Pogela. Thank you for listening and have a good week.